Ukraine goes on the offensive and attacks a bridge in Crimea that's a key road and rail supply route for Russia's ongoing invasion. It's Monday, July 17th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, what the Fed's next steps on the economy might be with unemployment down and inflation cooling. Also this hour. It's bonkers. If you just wrote a statistical model and said, what are the chances of this level of warming? It would be one in 250,000 years. The ocean water off Florida's coast is shattering temperature records. Scientists say climate change is mostly to blame. Plus, seeing if the forever chemicals known as PFAS are building up in fish. And this hour, how the publishing industry is pushing back against the use of artificial intelligence. In sports, Red Sox win. Clouds give way to sun today near 90. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Russia says it's going to stop participating in a crucial international grain agreement. It was brokered by Turkey and the U.N., and it expires today. The deal allowed Russian agricultural products and Ukrainian grain to be shipped safely through the Black Sea despite the war. Meanwhile, Russia is blaming Ukraine for what appears to be damage to the only bridge that connects mainland Russia with Crimea. Two people were killed in an apparent explosion. NPR's Charles Main says video shows that a chunk of the bridge is suddenly missing. It's a key supply line for Russian forces operating in southern Ukraine. Uh, it's also certainly a potent symbol of Moscow's hold over Crimea, the territory Russia, of course, illegally annexed from Ukraine in 2014. Uh, so much so that President Vladimir Putin personally drove the first vehicle over the bridge when it opened in 2018 to much fanfare. And for all those reasons, Ukraine has said the bridge is a legitimate military target. NPR's Charles Main's reporting. Alabama lawmakers open a special session today to redraw the state's congressional districts. Last month, the Supreme Court struck down the old Alabama district maps. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett reports the high court said these violated parts of the Voting Rights Act. Monday marks the beginning of the special session and is also the day that the Republican majority is expected to release their redrawn maps. Their maps may or may not give the plaintiffs in the Supreme Court case what they want a second black majority congressional district. In a state where half the residents are black, currently only one of Alabama's seven congressional districts has a majority of African-American voters. With the possible creation of another black majority district, election outcomes in Alabama could play a role in shifting power away from the slim Republican majority in the U.S. House. Legislators have until Friday to submit their redrawn maps. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Montgomery, Alabama. Vice President Harris paid tribute to Reverend Jesse Jackson yesterday in Chicago. Jackson has announced he is stepping down from the Rainbow Push Coalition he founded. From member station WBEZ, Anna Sofchenko prepared this report. Jackson, who has Parkinson's disease, was serenaded by a choir at the Apostolic Church of God on the south side of Chicago. He needed help to get from his wheelchair to the podium, but his lifelong message rang clear. I am somebody. I am. Harris said Jackson was an inspiration to her and said she had a Jesse Jackson for President bumper sticker on her car in the 1980s. Rev has widened the path for generations that would follow, including President Barack Obama and me as the first black woman to serve as Vice President of the United States. Barring one of Jackson's famous speech lines, she urged the audience to keep hope alive. For NPR News, I'm on the Sofchenko in Chicago. This is NPR.
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The National Weather Service confirms a tornado hit the central mass town of North Brookfield. The tornado brought winds of 80 miles an hour to a two-mile-long path in the town yesterday morning. No one was hurt and there was no damage. It was the first tornado to hit Massachusetts in two years, and it was part of a day that brought torrential rains across the state. Despite the severe weather, there are fewer than a hundred power outages reported statewide at this hour. A large section of the Green Line of the T is closed this morning, and it'll stay closed for nearly two weeks. WBUR's Dan Guzman reports. Buses are replacing trains on the entire above-ground section of the B Branch. The closure will allow crews to replace nearly half a mile of tracks in Alston. The work schedule was moved up after a Green Line trolley derailed last month at the big curve in Packard's Corner. No one was hurt. The tracks will be replaced in Packard's Corner and between Harvard Avenue and Alston Street. Regular service is expected to resume on Saturday, July 29th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman. Congressman Seth Moulton is calling the National 988 Suicide Prevention Lifeline that launched a year ago a success. Moulton introduced the legislation on Capitol Hill that created the line. He says on average 180 Massachusetts residents use the line each day for help, and he believes more can be done to improve the service. We're just inaugurating a Spanish-language version. Uh, We want to make sure that there is a more diverse set of counselors who can tailor their expertise to the needs of individual callers. He says he's been focused on mental health after suffering post-traumatic stress from four combat tours in Iraq. On Beacon Hill, a bipartisan group of lawmakers is pushing for a ban on TikTok on state and local government computers. The proposal would restrict use of social media sites with ties to the Chinese government on municipal computers and mobile devices. Supporters call it a security issue. There's a similar ban in effect in some other states. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. The Red Sox topped the Cubs 11-5 to yesterday in Chicago. Boston took two out of three in the weekend series. The Sox will visit the Oakland A's tonight. NASCAR will run its race at the New Hampshire Motor Speedway today at noon. Yesterday's Cup Series race was postponed because of the rain. Cloudy this morning with sun by the afternoon. It'll be in the upper 80s, clear overnight with temperatures around 70. Mostly sunny tomorrow with a slight chance for afternoon showers near 90 again. Right now it's 73 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Want some new summer reads on us? Sign up for WBUR's Beach Books newsletter in the month of July and you could win a $30 gift card to Beacon Hill Books. We're picking from our subscribers each week, so sign up for Beach Books at wbur.org slash beachbooks. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. In a moment, we hear the effects of a war in Sudan. 
we begin with the effort to keep this country safe. It's a story that illustrates how Congress often works. The House has passed a measure funding the U.S. military, which is normally a bipartisan measure. But the Republican majority added amendments, backed by Republicans alone, banning transgender health care funding and reimbursements for travel for abortions. President Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, told CNN the president will not sign this. What you've seen from an extreme group of Republicans is to put forward a set of amendments that try to mix domestic social debates with the needs, the security needs of our nation. But before this measure reaches Biden's desk, it is considered before the U.S. Senate, where Democrats set the agenda, although Republicans have a lot of power. And we've called one of those Republicans, Mike Rounds of South Dakota. Senator, good morning. Hey, good morning. Appreciate the opportunity to visit with you this morning. Is this defense bill the right forum for people to argue over abortion and trans people? Well, this is an opportunity to discuss with a bill that passes every single year, at least for the last 63 years. And it talks about policies that involve the Department of Defense. Excuse me. When President Biden authorized uh, the use of federal funds to allow people to transfer from one state to another to have an abortion, he brings that into play. And I'm quite certain he knew he was doing it when he did it. Uh, And so it becomes an item of discussion. So yeah, anytime you're talking about Department of Defense policies, you're gonna have the opportunity to discuss those types of very important issues that the nation follows. But in the I meantime, guess we should, I guess we should the remind Senate has not for, yet done our work should, I'm, yet. I'm, I'm sorry, Senator. I guess we should remind people uh, there have been bans on using federal funds for abortion for a long time. They've been voted on that way by people in both parties for decades. And you're saying that Biden uh, moved the goalposts in some way by saying the federal government would not pay for abortions but would allow people to travel for an abortion if they need to because it's been banned in their state. You're saying that's a legitimate no. part of a defense bill? Not so much that they can travel, but rather that it would be paid for by the federal government. And under the Hyde Amendment, which has been there for years, there is a prohibition against using federal funds for, for providing abortions. Now, the president will say, I'm not providing them, I'm just providing them transportation costs and so forth and time off to do an abortion. But that's the reason why this discussion is going on in the first place. But in the meantime, you've got a House of authorization, and this is not an appropriation, this is an authorization bill. Right. The Senate is in the middle of creating our own bill, which it tries to address some of the same, the same issues, but probably on a more bipartisan basis. And in order for this to go into law, it will have to be done on a bipartisan basis. So it probably will not end up in law the way that it comes out of the House, even though a lot of us would prefer to see a number of those items created. But the reality is, is This is a bill that will pass eventually, but it should pass with bipartisan support, focusing on the military and our need to defend our country. A little bit of common sense will go a long way as we discuss these issues for the for the next three, four months. Okay, I'm hearing your prediction that this bill is going to pass. It gets through the Senate, then they work out the differences between the House and the Senate. There is this transgender health care measure in here, though. Why do you think it is, Senator? that transgender issues have animated so many prominent voices in your party? I think it's a fact that, that right now what you've got is, is most traditional folks across the country have seen transgender, but they haven't seen it as an item of utmost interest. And yet at the federal level, particularly with the Department of Defense, there have been 
clear directions by the Biden administration focusing on transgender issues. In fact, and I'll, let me just share with you the frustration and the reason why I talk about a little bit of common sense. This last year, CQ, or this last week, CQ Brown, who is going to be the nominee, he is the nominee to become the, the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs and a guy right. that I want to support. I had to ask him a question about a, about a young lady who was in the uh, South Dakota National Guard, 18 years old, going to boot camp, finds herself between two men in open bay sleeping quarters that are, that are, that are basically transgendering. They are changing from male to female where the chemical process has begun, no surgeries. How do you go back to her parents and say that this is appropriate? And, and, and those are the types of items that in their 71-page proposal in which how to treat transgenders, uh, it's not being addressed appropriately. Those are the issues that bring people concern. Do you think that those kinds of things can be worked out on a bipartisan basis, as you just suggested the abortion matter could be? I think we can. And, and, and look, the bottom line is, is you have folks that are transgender, but they are also someone's child. So number one, we want to talk about how we treat everybody. And, and we try to say that we want everybody to feel welcome in the military. But we've also got to take a look at making sure that everybody is comfortable with the conditions they find themselves in, including those that, uh, that, that, that probably have never seen or never worked with or never been a part of a transgender community and feel very uncomfortable around one. Just a, just a few seconds left, Senator, but let me ask about funding for Ukraine. There is funding for Ukraine in this defense bill, as I understand it, but uh, Speaker McCarthy and some of his caucus have continued to express skepticism about going too far. Do you think that Ukraine will continue to get all the support it needs from the United States? I think what you found in the votes in the House and clearly the votes in the Senate strongly support, continued support for Ukraine and their fight against an absolutely illegal uh, attack by, by, by Russia. Putin's war in Ukraine was a mistake. Uh, the United States and all of our NATO allies support Ukraine in this matter, and I think you're going to find very strong, very bipartisan support for moving forward with continued support for Ukraine. Remember, right. we're providing materials. None of our young men and women are in harm's way, and we want to keep it that way. But we clearly want Ukraine to be victorious in, in this battle. Republican Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota, thanks as always. Thank you, sir. The conflict in Sudan is entering a fourth month with no sign of a resolution. Fighting between the Sudanese army and the rival rapid support forces in the capital of Khartoum and across Sudan is deepening poverty and hunger and driving millions from their homes. Our Africa correspondent, Emmanuel Akinwotu, has been covering the conflict, joins us now from Ibadan in Nigeria. Emmanuel, how bad are things in Sudan? Well, more than three million people have been displaced and counting. You know, 3,000 people have been killed and 6,000 injured. That's according to Sudan's Ministry of Health, although the true figure is likely way higher. You know, there's a communications blackout across parts of Sudan, so really there's a limit to what we know. The epicenter of the fighting is still in Khartoum, the capital, and especially Omdurman, which is a neighboring city. And some of the most shocking atrocities have been in West Darfur, um, where there are echoes of the genocidal violence that we saw 20 years ago against Darfur's non-Arab ethnic groups. And albeit that was in a different context, you know, at the moment the International Criminal Court have actually opened investigations into these abuses. And every day we're hearing new details of atrocities and potential war crimes. You know, the hu humanitarian aid is sorely limited across the country. 
um, and peace talks have so far been a failure. When I've been talking to people, there's this feeling of despair that the international urgency has waned, even though the conflict has gotten worse. And we should warn the audience, you're going to hear some gunfire in this piece. For over three months, everyday life has been cruelly upended into a frontline fight for control of Sudan. Army Air Force jets bomb targets from the sky in the capital Khartoum, toppling apartment blocks or hospitals that the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, have occupied. The RSF launched their offensives from the ground, breaking into homes and residential buildings. Throughout this conflict, we've been in touch with residents in Khartoum and beyond, who regularly post footage and updates of the horror and warfare unfolding on their streets. The conflict has destroyed the health system and left millions displaced. More than a million people have left Sudan, and over 200,000 refugees alone have crossed from Darfur to neighboring Chad, fleeing some of the worst violence seen there since the genocidal war 20 years ago. Miriam Hadia Mohammed is one of them. I met her in a refugee camp inside Chad some weeks ago. She said attacks by the RSF and allied militias targeted and killed several people like her, civilians of African ethnicities. The reason I came is because of the Arabs, or the RSF, who came to us and said if we don't leave now, they'd kill us all. She fled with her four children, but she doesn't know where her husband and her siblings are. She's praying they're still alive. While Darfur and the country have deteriorated, very little help has arrived. I think it's quickly falling back to being a neglected crisis, unfortunately. William Carter is the country director for the Norwegian Refugee Council and has stayed in the country throughout the conflict. He said the fighting made it virtually impossible to access several areas and that international support for Sudan has waned. I haven't seen it diplomatically being treated with urgency. It's not an ignorance case. It's a case of like, apathy at the moment. Um, and you know, the right power is not necessarily willing to stick their necks out. Several ceasefire deals to allow the movement of aid were negotiated by the US and Saudi Arabia, but then failed to hold. Peace talks led by the two countries were held in Jeddah, but unraveled last month. Then in recent days, there was a new flurry of diplomatic efforts. Awalan. This was Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi calling for a resolution at talks in Cairo last week, while the East African bloc, EGAD, have led another set of talks. But with parallel talks and conflicting objectives between them, there is little expectation they will facilitate peace. That's NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu in Nigeria. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, an ocean heat wave off Florida's coast is breaking records for water temperatures, putting coral reefs and fish at risk. It's 719. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. 
All right, so you hit snooze one too many times. You can't find your keys, but Morning Edition from NPR News is right there for you and makes starting your day a little bit easier. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AAF CPAs, accounting, audit, tax, advisory, and wealth management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com. And New England Innovation Academy in Marlboro. Day and boarding school for grades 6 to 12. Free Innovation Studio Workshop, July 17th. NEIacademy.org. We are now two weeks into the summer-long closure of the Sumner Tunnel. Both the Blue Line of the T and the East Boston Ferry are both free to help people get them around the closure. Fares are also discounted on the Newburyport-Rockport commuter rail line. Many drivers are using the Ted Williams Tunnel as a detour to get into downtown. Right now it's a 25-minute drive from Boardman Street to 93. Learn more about the closure and how to get around it by visiting WBUR.org. Mostly cloudy skies gradually clear for a sunny afternoon today. Temperatures will rise to a high near 88. Tonight, clouds move back in and it falls to a low around 70. Tomorrow, partly sunny and a high near 85. There's a slight chance of showers in the afternoon. Right now, it's 73 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can learn about the wine, winemaker, and region. Every purchase supports NPR programming. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Ever wanted to know what it feels like to get punched in a video game? Me? No, not so much, but some people do. And they use what are known as haptic suits to feel a bit of that sensation. But they're not just for gamers. People who are deaf or have trouble hearing are using haptic suits to feel music. NPR's Jennifer Vanasco went to a silent disco in New York to hear how it all works. I'm going to hold this. We're standing in the wings of an outdoor stage about an hour before the DJ starts. Exactly like a school. Patty Hanlon helps me into a haptic suit. It's a vest, really, studded with small plastic boxes. They're called actuators. They vibrate. And uh, they're spread across the shoulders, the rib cage, the mid back, and the low back. The suit straps across the chest like a hiking backpack. And then I'm going to come around the front. Wearing the suit is a surprise. There are taps like raindrops on the shoulders. A tickle across the ribs, a rhythmic pulsing like a massage chair, a kind of fuzzy vibration up the spine. The idea is to pull this as tight as possible. Basically, you want it pretty close. Like a hug. Then there's a small box for each wrist. It goes on like a smartwatch, and one around each ankle. Hanlon is the co-founder of Music Not Impossible. Tonight, he's also acting as the haptic DJ. Just like a music DJ mixes sound in an artful way, Hanlon changes the location, frequency, and intensity of the vibrations across the suits. When we tried it initially, like we were just basically 
strapping speakers onto ourselves, which was fine. It felt fine. It was like a, an all-over vibration. But then when we developed this, it was more like it's, it creates nearly like a 3D space on the body. For the deaf community, it helps them even keep in time and just feel included with the rest of the audience. Welcome. My name is Kevin Gotkin. Gotkin is DJing the first set tonight in a bright yellow dress and very high heels. They curate disability artistry events like these at Lincoln Center. Their DJ name is Who Girl, and they say, we're here celebrating the 23rd anniversary of the passing of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Tonight we do what we have done for so long. We dance with the pain and the rage. And we imagine that the access revolution has already come. The theme of tonight's disco is accessibility for all. There are American Sign Language interpreters, the music is captioned on a screen, there's audio description for those who are blind. There are chairs to sit in. Okay, I'm gonna turn it on. Are you ready? But it's the suits that are the star attraction. Oh. <laughs> There's a long line sneaking around a gigantic disco ball that's hovering above Lincoln Center's famous fountain. People are waiting to try on the suits. They're available to everyone, regardless of ability. Orisa Rowe is trying one on for the first time. Right now my hand is doing boom, 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 boom. <laughs> she is a little thrown by the experience. In my body like... This is a silent disco, so everyone on the dance floor is also wearing a pair of large glowing headphones. Without the headphones, it sounds like this in the plaza. If you listen closely, you can hear people singing in the background. But inside the headphones, it's a full-fledged party. This is Anne-Marie Agboji. It feels like you're in like a ball of your own and you feel vibrations all over your arms, your legs, your back. Agboji is full on dancing, even though it's still daylight. It's like no one else is there. And then there's Lily Lippman. She has auditory processing disorder, which she says is like dyslexia for audio information. It makes it hard for her to understand sound sometimes, but she says, the haptic suits make her feel like she's part of something. It's cool because I'm never quite sure if I'm hearing what other people are hearing. So it's very cool to, to get some of those like subtleties in my body too. This kind of audience, partly hearing, partly hard of hearing, is actually what Music Not Impossible is looking for. Daniel Belker is the primary inventor of the haptic suits. It became a, a tool not just for giving access to the deaf to music concerts, but also to integrate people because they're all enjoying, they're all dancing and, you know, having a great time. He says the original idea came when he learned more about the deaf community. They like to go to uh, concerts, but the, what they were doing at the time was like holding balloons, you know, to feel the vibrations through their fingers. So it's like, you know, at this time and age, like, it's not, it's far from ideal, right? Like, it's not cool. It's kind of limiting. So we could do better than that. Music Not Impossible has held events in Brazil, Japan, Australia, and the United Kingdom. A Philadelphia event is coming up, and they'll be back at Lincoln Center later this summer for a concert with the Mostly Mozart Festival Orchestra. Belker says he hopes someday these kinds of accessible events will be everywhere, that they will provide a space to help different communities get in tune with each other. Jennifer Venasco, NPR News, New York. Some beloved video games of the recent past may soon be lost to time. 
An organization called the Video Game History Foundation tracks old games, and Phil Salvador, the library director, says many are close to extinction. For all pre-2010 video games, only 13% are actually still commercially available, which means the other 87% are, we like to say, critically endangered. The foundation published a survey on the video game reissue market, and Salvador had trouble finding some favorites. There's a video game I've loved for many years called Illusion of Gaia. It's sort of like a, an origin story of the world. But at this point, the only way to play it is to purchase what are increasingly rare antique video game cartridges or to go online and pirate a copy. Salvador says game companies occasionally re-release old games on new hardware, but only the very best sellers. Researchers have a hard time getting access to more obscure games, and Salvador would like for libraries to provide remote digital access to gaming archives, although he knows that the gaming industry may not like the competition. We don't see this as being competing efforts. We don't see it as the libraries trying to, you know, take a bite out of the industry's apple. We see these as really being complementary, that libraries and archives can provide this wider research access to the things that kind of fall outside the scope of what the game industry can do. In the meantime, if you've got an old Nintendo or Sega Genesis gaming console in your closet, maybe take a moment to blow off the dust and play those old games before they disappear. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 745 on WB Wars Morning Edition. With inflation now at its slowest rate in more than two years, experts say a so-called soft landing may be in sight for the American economy. It's 729. Use the WBUR app to listen live wherever you go today. You can use it to pause and even rewind. Find it in your app store today. WBUR supporters include the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Russia is suspending its involvement in a U.N. agreement that allows shipments of grain from Ukraine's ports along the Black Sea. That deal was brokered last summer with the help of Turkey. Its main purpose is to ensure shipments of grain reach countries in Africa and the Middle East. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov says Moscow is halting its participation in the U.N. deal until Russia's demands are met for exports of its food and fertilizer. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is in India today for a series of G20 finance meetings. As Sashmita Patak reports, this is Yellen's third visit to India in less than a year. Yellen is in the western Indian city of Gandhinagar, where two days of meetings of G20 finance ministers and central bank governors have begun. On the agenda are discussions about debt relief for struggling developing nations like Sri Lanka and a global tax deal to raise the share of taxes paid by multinational firms. Secretary Yellen and India's finance minister Nirmala Sitaraman also held bilateral talks reiterating their commitment to work closely on global economic challenges and to deepen the ties between their countries. 
The meeting follows Prime Minister Narendra Modi's state visit to the U.S. in June and Yellen's visit to China earlier this month. For NPR News, I'm Sushmita Pathak in Delhi. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. State representatives will meet today on Beacon Hill to discuss a 140-page gun reform bill. Leaders say the closed-door meeting is meant to clarify misconceptions about the plan. It faces growing opposition from gun advocates. Supporters say the plan addresses issues including how guns are licensed and where they can be carried in the state. They hope to pass the plan before the legislature's break next month. Selective colleges in Massachusetts are adapting to a world without affirmative action. The U.S. Supreme Court banned the practice last month, although, as WBUR's Max Larkin reports, the court left some room for the consideration of race in admissions. The court's decision allows schools to consider how race affected the lives of applicants. Schools seeking to promote racial diversity will work to hear those stories. And at the Olin College of Engineering in Needham, being small may be an asset. Susan Hartley Brisson is Olin's director of admissions. We do read carefully and we get to meet many of our candidates as well. So I think that gives us an advantage in understanding the totality of their experience. Olin's president says the school remains committed to training future engineers who are black and Latino. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. A Newton man is due in court this morning on charges related to the murder of his wife. Richard Hansen is accused of killing his wife in their Newton home on Saturday night. The Middlesex DA says a restraining order Order was issued against him last week. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices. Catering your office lunch in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. The Red Sox beat the Cubs 11-5 yesterday in Chicago. Tonight, the Sox will play the A's in Oakland. Clouds gradually move out this morning and we'll have a sunny afternoon with high temperatures in the upper 80s. Tonight it falls back to around 70 and grows partly cloudy. Tomorrow a high of 85 and partly sunny with a slight chance of afternoon showers. Right now it's 74 degrees in Boston. You're with WBWAR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, with a variety of British mysteries available for streaming, including all seasons of Luther, Father Brown, and Silent Witness. Available during Mystery Month at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. On a Monday, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. An ocean heat wave off Florida's coast is breaking records for water temperatures. Now, the El Nino weather pattern is partly to blame, but scientists say what's really supercharging the heat is climate change. Jenny Stiletovich joins us from member station WLRN in Miami, where she's been following this closely. Jenny, Florida summers, always hot and humid. What would it feel like, though, if we jumped in the ocean this week? 
Yeah, well, so usually in the summer, it can feel like climbing into a bathtub here, but right now it's more like a hot tub. Um, water temperatures typically average about 88 degrees in the summer. Now they're about five degrees higher. Water just offshore in Florida Bay near the Upper Keys hit 98 degrees last week. So that is literally hot tub hot. How unusual is that? The heat we're seeing now is really unprecedented. Even climate scientists say they were caught off guard by such a big spike. Ben Kurtman is an atmospheric scientist at the University of Miami Rosenstiel School, and here's how he describes this ocean heat wave. It's bonkers. Uh, I don't know how else to put it. It's, it's out of bounds from what we've seen. If you just wrote a statistical model and said, what are the chances of this level of warming? It would be one in 250,000 years that that would happen. So Kerbin says we normally break temperature records by fractions, like a tenth of a degree, not five whole degrees. And warmer water can't be good news for ocean life. Uh, no. So coral is probably the most immediate concern because reefs off Florida and around the Caribbean and the Bahamas are already in trouble. Since the 1970s, the reefs have lost about 80% of their coral. Now, with such high temperatures this early in the summer, scientists are worried about widespread bleaching. That's when coral expel the algae they need to survive and they die. Um, Andrew Baker is a coral scientist at the University of Miami. He says corals have already started bleaching in Belize and elsewhere. It's not as if it's just warming up here in Florida. This is clearly kind of a Caribbean region wide thing. And that's, I think, why people are starting to think that it, it probably has some legs and, and is likely to be with us for a while. And summertime is also when corals spawn. So in the next two weeks or so, Baker says scientists will decide if they want to remove some corals from the reef and let them spawn in labs. Um, then they'd release the babies back into the ocean. What about uh, sea critters? How are they doing? So water sucks up a lot of oxygen, which can lead to fish kills. We saw some rare fish kills off Miami three years ago, and a hotter ocean could also lead to warmer trade winds, which help cool Florida. So that could exacerbate the record heat that we're already feeling on land. And how does this look for hurricane season? So uh, this season was supposed to be the first near normal season after seven above average seasons because of that El Nino weather pattern, which can weaken storms. But some forecasters are already adjusting their predictions. They think all the hot water, which can fuel hurricanes, will cancel out the effects of the El Nino. Man, okay, so any relief in sight? <laughs> So ironically, hurricanes could provide some temporary relief. They suck up heat and mix deeper, cooler waters with hot surface waters. But atmospheric scientist Ben Kurtman says that what we've seen from climate change so far is that ocean temperatures can ratchet up and then plateau. But he says they never really go back down. Jenny Stolinovich with WLRN in Miami. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Thousands of writers have signed a letter demanding that big companies stop mining their work for free. They don't want companies like Meta or OpenAI to use artificial intelligence, large language models to suck up their words and learn to write unless they pay for the privilege. NPR's Chloe Veltman reports. It's always been tough to make a living as a writer. The Coen Brothers movie Barton Fink captures society's deep underappreciation of the profession. You need guidance? Talk to another writer. Oh, Jesus. You throw a rock in here, you'll hit one. Do me a favor, Fink. Throw it hard. 
According to a forthcoming Authors Guild report, a full-time writer's median income last year was $23,000. The advent of text-based generative AI applications like GPT-4 and BARD that scrape the web for authors' content without permission or compensation and then use it to produce new content is giving writers across the country even more cause for worry. There's no urgent need for AI to write a novel. That's Alexander Chee, the best-selling author of novels like Edinburgh and The Queen of the Night. The only people who might need that are the people who object to paying writers what they're worth. Chee is among the nearly 8,000 authors who just signed a letter addressed to the leaders of AI companies such as OpenAI, Alphabet and Meta. Mary Rasenberger is the CEO of the Authors Guild, the writers' advocacy group behind the letter. It says it's not fair to use our stuff in your AI without permission or payment. So please start compensating us and talking to us. Rosenberger says the Guild is trying to get these companies to settle without suing them. Lawsuits are a tremendous amount of money. They take a really long time. But some literary figures are willing to fight the tech companies in court. Lawsuits involving such authors as Sarah Silverman, Paul Tremblay and Mona Awad allege Meta and OpenAI trained their AI programs on pirated copies of their works. The plaintiff's lawyers couldn't be reached in time for NPR's deadline and the AI companies turned down requests for comment. Gina Maccabee is a literary agent in New York. She says the legal actions are a necessary step towards getting writers a fair shake. It has to happen. That's the only way these things are settled. Maccabee says agents are starting to talk to publishers about including language that prohibits unauthorised uses of AI in writers' contracts as another way to protect their and their clients' livelihoods. What I hear from colleagues is that most publishers are amenable to restricting certain kinds of AI use. The major publishers NPR contacted for this story declined to comment. Maccabee says even if authors' contracts explicitly forbid AI companies from scraping and profiting from literary works, the rules are hard to enforce. I mean, how does one know if a book is in a data set that was ingested by an AI program? You just, how are you to know? Start spreading the news. AI's got something to say. It's coding it its own way. Learning the rules today. This AI-generated Frank Sinatra spoof was played at the start of a recent Senate Judiciary Subcommittee hearing on AI. Many such meetings have been held at various levels of government lately. Raman Chowdhury is a responsible AI fellow at Harvard University who testified at one of these hearings. Right now, there's a lot of talking about it, but we're not seeing yet any concrete legislation or regulation coming out. She says the way forward is bound to be messy. Some of it will be litigated, some of it will be regulated, and some of it people will literally just have to shout until we're heard. Chowdhury says for now, the best thing authors and those that support them can do is ask AI companies to play nice. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR's Morning Edition, a bridge that serves as a crucial supply line from Crimea to Russia's mainland has been partially destroyed in an explosion that killed two people.
Cloudy skies will gradually break up and we'll have a sunny afternoon near 90 today. Tonight it grows a bit overcast and falls to around 70. Tomorrow, partly sunny and mid-80s. Right now it's 74 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com. Fewer people are buying homes in Massachusetts. That's according to data out this morning from the Massachusetts Association of Realtors. It shows sales for both single-family homes and condos were down more than 20 percent in June compared to the same time last year. Association President David McCarthy says new home listings are also down more than 30 percent. But he says the tight market hasn't stopped people from trying to buy a home. And then one of the other notations that I would make, especially on the first home home buyer that we see is, is that some of the landlords have raised the prices so high that it really is economical for someone to buy their first home, regardless of what the interest rates are. Association data show the median cost of a single-family home in Massachusetts is now around $650,000. Stock in Boston-based State Street is down more than 1% in pre-market trading. That's after a 12% drop on Friday, which was the biggest one-day loss in three years. It followed the financial institution's announcement that its interest rate income was no longer lifting profits. It's 744. The Sumner Tunnel is closed through the end of August. So if you're trying to get from East Boston or Logan Airport to downtown, state officials say please don't drive. The fastest, cheapest, and most reliable way in and out of Boston during this time period is going to, without a doubt, be public transportation. We are providing free and discounted Blue Line, commuter rail, bus, and ferry service. For tips on how to get around the summer Sumner shutdown, visit WBUR.org and stay tuned to WBUR for updates. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. From Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. Details at CapitalOne.com. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required. Capital One Bank, USA, N.A. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Federal Reserve policymakers meet later this month to discuss what they do next. The central bank is widely expected to raise interest rates after skipping a rate increase at their June meeting. But this raises questions because the Fed has been raising rates to attack inflation, which is now way down and the Fed would not like to choke off the economy. David Wessel is following this, as he always does. He's director of the Hutchins Center at the Brookings Institution. David, good morning. Good morning, Steve. Uh, I just saw the news the other day that inflation year-on-year year is down to 3%, which sounds way better than it was. So why would the Fed be talking about rate increases still? Well, because inflation remains above their 2% target. In mm. June, they penciled in two more quarter-point rate increases this year, they're on track for one more. That would take their benchmark rate to five and a quarter percent. But as Fed officials are fond of saying, they're data dependent. In other words, 
What they do depends on what the economy does. Some of them think they're going to have to keep raising rates until they're certain inflation has been conquered, but others now believe they've done enough or nearly enough to achieve the elusive soft landing. Ah, elusive meaning that you could miss the target here. So what is a soft landing as the Fed defines it? Well, there's no precise definition, but a soft landing is when the Fed manages to slow the economy gently, but enough to bring inflation down towards its 2% target without a severe recession or a big increase in unemployment. It's in contrast to a hard landing when they raise rates so much that we get a severe recession, the economy contracts as it did in the early 1980s. How would you assess the likelihood of getting that soft landing as opposed to a hard one? Well, I've changed my mind on that. Six months ago, I would have told you that a soft landing was unlikely. But the incoming data has been very encouraging. Inflation, as you said, has been coming down, and it's expected to continue to come down because rents are falling and kinks in supply chains are being worked out. Meanwhile, the economy, and particularly the job market, has proven very resilient. So the best case is the Fed decides that it's done enough. It decides to hold off on further rate hikes. Employers cut back hiring without a lot of layoffs. The unemployment rate goes up a little bit, but not very much. We get some more encouraging inflation readings. Now, on Wall Street, J.P. Morgan economists now say that scenario of a soft landing is looking, quote, more plausible. And Goldman Sachs has lowered its probability of a recession in the next 12 months to just 25 percent. Oh, meaning that the majority case here would be a probability of no recession in the next 12 months, which sounds promising. Right. Now, the problem is it's not a sure thing. A hard landing is still a possibility. If inflation doesn't cooperate, if the job market doesn't cool off, if the Fed uh, is careful and doesn't overdo it so it raises rates too much, or if there's some really bad news surprise from Ukraine or something to hit the economy while growth is already slowing, we could end up with that severe recession. But Paul Krugman, the Nobel laureate, put it well the other day. He said, we haven't touched down on the runway yet. A soft landing isn't guaranteed, but it now looks amazingly within reach. Okay. All right. Everybody, make sure your seatbelts are on, and we'll see what happens. David, thanks. You're welcome. David Wessel, director of the Hutchins Center at the Brookings Institution. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR's Morning Edition at 825, with a new strike underway by more than 150,000 television and movie actors in Hollywood, we look at what happened during another actor's strike more than 40 years ago. It's 749. We spend every day of our lives eating food. We spend every day of our lives in our body. And yet most of the messages you're getting as you're growing up are often misinformation from people who might not be as educated in the topic. We'll talk with authors who say they have a science-based and humor-laced way of making peace with your body. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. The cost of wheat is rising as Russia pulls out of a wartime deal that allowed Ukraine to export grain. Iran's so-called morality police will resume patrols, enforcing rules requiring women to wear a hijab 10 months after protests following a woman's death. Uh, MBTA crews in Alston are beginning track work on the first day of the two-week shutdown of the Green Line's B branch. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at VRTX.com. Overcast skies will slowly clear this morning and we'll have a sunny afternoon near 90 degrees. Tonight it falls to around 70 and some clouds move back in. Tomorrow mid-80s and partly sunny with a slight chance of showers in the afternoon. Right now it's 74 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Amy Martinez. Over the past 26 years, only two people have ever hosted Fox News's 8 p.m. weekday show, perhaps the most important slot in their lineup. Both men, Bill O'Reilly and Tucker Carlson, became huge stars on Fox, both pushed out amid scandal. Now comes Jesse Waters, a rising star at Fox, with a wink and a smirk. As NPR's media correspondent David Folkenflik reports, critics don't find his rise a laughing matter. Jesse Waters joined Fox shortly after graduating college more than two decades ago and has never worked anywhere else since. He rose to prominence as a young producer on the hit primetime show, The O'Reilly Factor. Bernie Sanders wants to raise taxes. What do you think about that? No? Not a good idea? Wait, I don't want to be like one of your pinheads. Former Fox producer Joe Muto worked for the show, too. Bill would send him out on, you know, little taped pieces to confront people who mostly people who got on Bill's nerves. Um, they weren't always the most newsworthy items, but they were usually entertaining. Mudo says Waters' humor revealed a mean streak. That was what those segments were. I mean, they were cherry picking. They weren't actually interested in getting more intelligent, cogent responses. He's interested in getting people who are like stammering and, you know, or stoned in the case of college students or, or barely speak English in the case of the, the Chinatown thing. Ah, uh, yes, the Chinatown thing. In 2016, spurred by candidate Donald Trump's focus on China as a campaign issue, O'Reilly sent Waters to New York City's Chinatown. Am I supposed to bow to say hello? I like these watches. Are they hot? Waters next thrust a microphone in the face of a clearly incomprehending elderly woman. She remained silent. He went on. Asian-American journalists protested, as did others. How was that on the news? In fact, how was that even on TV? The Daily Show's Ronnie Cheng went on a tear. I mean, everyone's been wondering who'd be the target of 2016's worst racism. I didn't even know Asians were in the running. <laughs> oh, and by the way, if you're going to be racist, at least get your stereotypes right. Waters tweeted that he regretted if anyone took offense. The backlash didn't slow him down. Fox gave Waters his own shows and a co-host gig on the popular show The Five. Ratings and outrage following in his wake. On the air, Waters has asked whether teachers could specifically paddle female students, mocked the homeless, and made what was uniformly taken to be a crude sexual joke about Ivanka Trump. So I don't really get what's going on here, but uh, I really liked how she was speaking into that microphone. After an outcry, Waters claimed he thought she looked like a DJ and abruptly announced he was taking a vacation. I think this is somebody who 
is that fun guy in high school who stood there and, and quietly made fun of the nerds. And the rest of us stood around and kind of laughed with him. Julie Roginski is a former Fox commentator and guest host on The Five. But then most of us outgrew that <laughs> and, and decided that was not the right way to go in life. Back in 2012, as a Fox producer, Waters gave money to President Barack Obama's reelection campaign, 500 bucks. These days, he's embraced Trump, advanced conspiracy theories, and even cited QAnon approvingly on the air. A spokesperson said Fox executives and Waters were too busy to speak for this article. Waters is entirely a creature of Fox, but there's a stark contrast with his predecessors on the 8 p.m. show, O'Reilly and Carlson. They were not there to be clowns. They were there to provide what Fox considered to be serious analysis of the day's news. Roginsky, it should be noted, disagrees with pretty much anything either O'Reilly or Carlson has had to say. Fox's former chief executive, the late Roger Ailes and O'Reilly, were fired by the network after allegations that each sexually harassed multiple women at Fox, an allegation each denied. Roginsky was one of those who accused Ailes of harassment, and she received a settlement after filing her suit. Fox officials say the culture has been transformed. Yet, Roginsky draws a straight line between what she calls the toxic environment she experienced off the air and what Waters says on it. But let's call it what it is. It's, it's audience maintenance. It's certainly not humor or a joke. Fox ousted Carlson this spring. The network has paid a total of $800 million to settle two separate lawsuits in which Carlson featured prominently, one involving defamatory conspiracy theories, the other allegations of a workplace that's hostile to women. Waters will make his debut in the 8 p.m. slot this evening. David Folkenflik, NPR News. So-called forever chemicals could be in almost half this country's drinking water. That's according to a recent study by the U.S. Geological Survey. The chemicals are known by the acronym PFAS. And this year, the Environmental Protection Agency proposed to limit PFAS chemicals in drinking water. In Virginia, state officials want to know if a type of PFAS known as Gen X is found in fish. Roxy Todd of member station Radio IQ in Roanoke waded through the local river for this report. The water is beautifully clear, with thousands of snails clinging to rocks. We're at the uh, South Fork Roanoke River, just above Elliston. Jason Hill is one of four researchers out on the river today. We're all wearing brown waders, knee-deep in the water. Across the street is the source of a chemical leak that lasted at least two years, says Sarah Baumgartner with the Western Virginia Water Authority. And we found it, and it was rather surprising. What surprised her is that this part of the river was pristine, until a company, ProChem, added a PFAS, a forever compound known as Gen X. So Roanoke's drinking water no longer comes from here, she says. We stopped pulling water out of the Roanoke River, and we've just been using the water that we already had stored in our reservoir. That will last about three years, she says, and they hope that the Gen X will dilute or wash away but it can stick to the rocks and sediment around us. And people still fish in this river. A recent study found that eating freshwater fish can potentially expose someone to PFAS. So biologist Kelly Hazelgrove dips a net into the water. Did you find another one? Somebody ran over here. All right, Don't Mac, get him, get him, Mac. Matt Calvert is a biology major at Roanoke College, helping with the research. Today, he's wearing an enormous backpack that sends electricity into the water to shock fish. That makes it easier to catch them. That was a nice one that just ran by us. Calvert looks kind of like a ghostbuster moving through the water. 
There's a beep every time he shocks the water. They catch their first fish of the day. It has gold and brown speckles on its body. A rock bass. This bass and the other fish they catch will be sent to a lab in Richmond to be analyzed for 40 different types of PFAS compounds, including Gen X. State officials have not yet issued a health advisory for this part of the river. They're still reviewing the data, which will include the results from today's catch. For NPR News, I'm Roxy Todd in the South Fork of the Roanoke River. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Near 90 today under cloudy skies that'll gradually break up for a sunny afternoon. It grows overcast again tonight and temperatures drop to around 70. Tomorrow, mid-80s and partly sunny. There's a slight chance we may see some afternoon showers. Right now, it's 74 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Russia pulls out of a deal that allowed Ukraine to export grain following the partial destruction of a key bridge in Crimea. It's Monday, July 17th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, as much of the U.S. deals with extreme temperatures, doctors are warning people to watch for signs of heat exhaustion. The worst of the symptoms can come on very quickly without realizing it, and all of a sudden, you know, your body's overheating to a point where you won't really be able to kind of reverse what's already gone on. Also, morality police redeploy in Iran 10 months after nationwide protests and this hour. There's a problem solving. That cultured environment of constantly thinking about new ways of thinking and doing. It's like in the water, so to speak. How one Massachusetts college is adjusting to the recent Supreme Court decision on affirmative action. Cloudy skies gradually clear near 90 today. It's 801, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Russia says the international grain deal brokered by the UN and Turkey is over. It expires today and the Kremlin says Russia will not renew its participation. NPR's Joe Hernandez reports the agreement had allowed Russian agricultural products and Ukrainian grain to safely travel through the Black Sea despite the war. The deal brokered by Turkey and the United Nations last summer permits shipments to leave from three Ukrainian ports carrying foods like corn, wheat and barley. Ukraine has been called the breadbasket of Europe and experts say the deal has helped ease world hunger and avoid a spike in food prices. Russian President Vladimir Putin says a part of the deal that was also supposed to make it easier for Russia to export food and fertilizer hasn't been fulfilled. The United Nations says that in the roughly one year the deal has been in place, Ukraine has exported more than 32 million tons of grain and other foods. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. Exceptionally heavy rain in the Northeast this weekend turned deadly in Pennsylvania. A sudden flash flood swept onto a road north of Philadelphia, overturning family cars. At least five people have been killed and two small children are still missing. Local resident Nick Primola says he later drove past cars abandoned in the midst of the deadly flood. 
the little creeks that are usually just these calm, serene uh, little little waterways trickling down all of a sudden became violent and uh, and obviously um, tragic. Flash flood warnings went up in Vermont over the weekend, too. That state is still recovering from last week's deadly and catastrophic flooding. There was fear there could be landslides. In the south and west, the danger is from extreme heat. Temperatures in some parts of the southwest today will hit 115 degrees. Forecasters are warning longtime residents this is not your typical desert heat. It's sticking around for days, and they caution there will be no significant cool down overnight. Authorities in Georgia say officers shot and killed a man suspected of fatally shooting four people south of Atlanta. From member station WABE, Alex Helmick reports two officers were wounded in an exchange of gunfire with the suspect. The Henry County Sheriff says the shootout with Andre Longmore took place not far from the four separate crime scenes in a small town about 40 miles south of Atlanta. Longmore had been on the run since Saturday morning. Both a Henry County Sheriff's deputy and a Clayton County police officer were shot, with the most severe being hit in the back and helicoptered to an Atlanta hospital. Both are expected to recover. Police did not give a motive, but have named the victims as 67-year-old Scott Levitt and his wife, 66-year-old Shirley, 65-year-old Steve Blizzard, and 66-year-old Ronald Jeffers. For NPR News, I'm Alex Helmig. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. One of the world's highest-profile climbers is criticizing Nepalese tour companies. He's blaming them for one of the deadliest climbing seasons ever on Mount Everest. Joe Wallen reports from Mumbai. British climber Kenson Cool holds the record for the most ascents of Mount Everest by anyone outside of Nepal. Cool has claimed that Nepalese tour companies are skipping safety procedures to maximize profits and taking inexperienced climbers to the summit. At least 13 people have died on the world's tallest mountain this year, and four people are missing. Cool has called for an inquiry into Nepalese tour companies and requested better regulation, particularly of new firms. Each climber can pay around $50,000 to summit Everest, and the money is a vital boost to Nepal's ailing economy. The Nepalese government says that it is enforcing safety measures. For NPR News, I'm Joe Wallen in Mumbai. U.S. Climate Envoy John Kerry is in China for talks. The U.S. and China are the two countries that release the most pollutants in the world. Kerry is expected to urge China to limit its use of coal and reduce its methane emissions. These make global warming worse. Kerry's trip is part of a rapprochement between the U.S. and China. Relations were set back after former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan last year and then because a suspected Chinese spy balloon floated across the U.S. this year. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is visiting India today. She's meeting with G20 finance leaders. They're also talking about threats posed by climate change. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Healy and Lieutenant Governor Driscoll will be in western Massachusetts today to survey the damage from last week's flooding. They'll visit a farm in Deerfield. Farmers in some areas of western Mass say those floods destroyed their entire growing season. That wasn't helped by yesterday's rain. The National Weather Service says single-day rainfall records were broken yesterday in Boston, Providence, and Hartford. A tornado also touched down in North Brookfield. There was no damage. 
The state is looking for people who are willing to host families in need of shelter. The hosts will provide a room or apartment for a few days until longer-term accommodations are arranged. As WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports, the state is scrambling to find housing for an influx of homeless families, including many newly arrived immigrant families. The state's new Family Welcome Center in Alston is recruiting and vetting potential hosts. Experts say this model has previously been used for unaccompanied minors and in refugee resettlement, but it has not been broadly applied to family homelessness. Gerald Gabot of the Immigrant Family Services Institute supports the new strategy. While the state is trying to figure out exactly what to do and to open up more shelters, I think we as citizens, as members of our community, we also need to play our role. The state did not specify the vetting process or whether site visits are conducted. However, in a statement, it says it's drawing host families from community and volunteer networks. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. Salisbury officials will vote tonight on whether a right-wing organizer should continue to serve on the town's affordable housing board. Samson Rachapi is being considered for another five-year term overseeing the housing authority. Rachapi helped organize a so-called straight pride parade in Boston in 2019. He was also outside the Capitol on January 6th and has publicly defended the insurrection. Rajapi told the Boston Globe he has no comment about today's vote. The entire B branch of the Green Line is closed for about the next two weeks. The MBTA says it's closed the line from Boston College to Kenmore Square so it can replace nearly half a mile of tracks. That work will focus on Alston and the Big Bend at Packard's Corner. There was a minor train derailment there last month. The T says shuttle buses are replacing trains along the entire route until Saturday, July 29th. It's 8.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. The Red Sox beat the Cubs 11-5 to yesterday in Chicago. The Sox will travel to Oakland tonight to take on the A's. Cloudy this morning with sun by the afternoon. It'll be in the upper 80s, clear overnight with temperatures around 70. Mostly sunny tomorrow with a slight chance for afternoon showers, near 90 again. Right now it's 75 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Political donors are effectively casting their votes in the presidential race. In a moment, we hear what large and small donors are saying with their money. We begin with an eventful day in the war in Ukraine. Russia says it's leaving a deal that made it possible to ship grain out of Ukraine to other countries around the world. Now, that is one of two big stories today. The other is an attack on a bridge. Russia blamed Ukraine for explosions that seem to have taken a bite out of the only bridge connecting the Russian mainland to Crimea. That's the peninsula that Russia seized almost a decade ago and that Ukraine wants back. So much to dig into here. So we've reached out to NPR's Charles Maines, who's following it all from Moscow. Hey there. Morning. 
let's remember, so we're talking about grain shipments that go through the Black Sea out of Ukrainian ports. Russia has allowed them through the war zone up to now. So why would Russia pull out? Well, President Putin had been signaling he wanted to suspend Russian participation in the agreement, which formally ends today either way. And remember, this deal brokered by the UN and Turkey allows safe passage of grain uh, from Ukraine and Russia through the Black Sea. Uh, the problem is President Putin has said the deal was one-sided. It only benefited Ukraine. And Putin said that months of negotiations had done nothing to address Russian complaints. And those are this, that uh, Western sanctions, not on food, but on things like shipping and insurance and banking, essentially prevented the export of Russian grain grain and fertilizer. And today the Kremlin spokesman said Russia was suspending participation uh, until those snags are resolved. Oh, suspending participation until the snags are resolved. So maybe this is not the end of that story. Yeah, we'll have to see. And at the same time, we're following this other story. We only have information from Russia at this point about an apparent attack on this bridge. What are they saying? Well, what we heard from Russian media this morning saying two explosions hit the Kerch Bridge. That's the bridge that connects southern Russia to annexed Crimea early morning Monday. And there have been theories circulating as to how that may have happened. Uh, Russia's National Anti-Terrorist Committee said it involves so-called sea drones. Um, these are some kind of watercraft. Now, witness video online does appear to show a section of the road partially collapsed, although a parallel railway track seems undamaged. Uh, local authorities have also identified the victims. They say two people died. Uh, but a teenage girl was injured and left orphaned after her parents' car was apparently hit from whatever caused the damage. And Russia has made clear who they think is responsible as well. Uh, Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zaharova accused Ukraine of carrying out a terrorist attack uh, with help, she said, from American and British intelligence. I guess it's true that this bridge is used by civilians, but what is the military significance of it as a target? Yeah, this bridge is a key supply line for Russian forces operating in southern Ukraine. It's also a potent symbol of Moscow's hold over Crimea, the territory Russia illegally annexed from Ukraine in 2014. You know, so much so that President Vladimir Putin personally drove the first vehicle over the bridge when it opened in 2018 to much fanfare. And for all those reasons, Ukraine has said the bridge is a legitimate military target. Now, portions of the bridge were destroyed in a blast last October that Moscow blamed on Kiev. Ukraine later acknowledged a role in the attack, although it's been more coy this time around. NPR's Charles Maines, thanks so much. Thank you. One of the world's all-time greatest soccer players, Lionel Messi, is now playing in the United States. A sold-out stadium in South Florida welcomed Messi to Major League Soccer's Inter-Miami, and not even for a game. It's just a meet-and-greet. For Inter-Miami co-owner Jorge Mas, it was the culmination of a dream. Today, a new journey and a new chapter starts. There will always be a before and after Lionel Messi. NPR's Greg Allen knew Miami before and now knows Miami after. Greg, good morning. Hi, Steve. What was it like to be at this event? Well, quite a scene as you can imagine. The place was just packed with fans. About every second person was wearing a, a messy number 10 jersey. Hmm. The whole event was delayed uh, substantially, though, when a big thunderstorm and downpour came through. But these are devoted fans, and relatively few left the stadium. Club owner Jorge Moss and his partner, former star player David Beckham, were rained on as they introduced Messi, but Moss clearly wasn't feeling it. And tonight, we're doing this Miami style in the rain. This is holy water. Esto es agua bendita esta noche. Messi received his Inter-Miami uh, inter number 10 jersey, and he thanked the fans for their warm welcome in Spanish. He said, I'm sure we're going to have many wonderful experiences. How hard was it for this team to lure the greatest player? 
Well, you know, uh, uh, Miami and Jorge Moss worked for years to lure him here. You know, he's widely acclaimed, as you know, as the greatest player in the game today. He had all kinds of offers. He's from Argentina, uh, but began playing for Mar Barcelona at 16. Over two decades, he broke all kinds of records and numerous titles. Last year's World Cup, he led Argentina with his spectacular play and took home the title, his first ever. And then he was in France but then he for two years, but he surprised a lot of people when he said he decided to take the offer to come to the U.S. and play for Inter-Miami and Major League Soccer. Okay, so he uh, turned down other offers that might have been more lucrative, you've said. How much is he making? Well, it, it's hard to say because it's complicated. Uh, the team owners said the team's going to pay him uh, $50 or $60 million a year, depending on uh, on you know inducements but he also has deals with adidas and apple tv he'll also reportedly receive an equity interest in the team but part of the lure of coming to miami is the city itself and the culture the latin culture messi and his family have vacation homes here already he made a big splash on social media over the weekend when he went shopping with his kids at a public supermarket so that got that endeared well, okay. to people. well it's good that you've got the publics but i'm thinking he's a competitive guy he wants to win can he win an mls championship well, uh, probably not this year. Along with Messi, Miami also signed two other star players and his former coach at Barcelona. But Messi's joining a club that right now is at the bottom of the standings. Even so, fans don't care. Uh, Tony and Dina DeRoy said they didn't believe it at first when they heard Messi was coming to Miami. Because he's still, you know, at playing at a very high level. And usually, historically, you know, MLS clubs don't get guys that are still, like, in that part, the of, prime, their, yeah. that part of their career. So hearing that he was going to come here, it was a lot of uh, uh, disbelief at first. You know, like a lot of people, they think this will be a big lift for the growth of soccer in the U.S. Messi's first game in a Miami jersey will be on Friday when they go against Mexican team Cruz Azul. Going to be a lot of excitement in Miami. Greg, thanks yes. so much. Sure. That's NPR's Greg Allen. Long before any people vote in the 2024 presidential election, their money votes. Yeah, the latest campaign finance numbers are in. They show the enthusiasm of both large and small donors. So who's ahead? NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith has been counting. Hey there, Tam. Hello. All right. Who has the most money? So for this quarter, from April through June, President Biden has raised $72 million. That does include fundraising by the Democratic National Committee and their joint fundraising committees, because Biden's campaign is working hand-in-hand -hand with the DNC. That is a distinct advantage the incumbent has over Republicans who don't have party backing until there's a nominee. I spoke with Biden campaign co-chair Jeffrey Katzenberg, who said that the president got donations from about 400,000 individuals. 97% of those donations are under $200 with the average at $39. Those are stunning numbers. You know, in two days in San Francisco, President Biden raised over $10 million. That $10 million in two days was raked in at Tony fundraising events where contributions absolutely did not average $39. Hmm. And it is worth noting that while Biden raised almost as much as all of the Republicans combined, he is short of what Presidents Obama and Trump raised at this point in their re-election bids. Okay, wow. A lot of numbers there, but you're telling me that his fundraising is behind where the last two incumbent presidents were when they were seeking a second term and were at this point in the cycle. So he's behind that. But you said ahead of all the Republicans. How are they doing? 
Well, former President Trump, who's running again, uh, their campaign says they raised $35 million. But the filing from this weekend only gives a partial picture, $18 million, most of it transferred from a joint fundraising committee, which hasn't filed its numbers yet. Mm. He does come with a fundraising advantage, a large base of voters and small-dollar supporters who are on automatic payment plans. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis raised $20 million in fewer than 40 days in the race, but he also spent roughly $8 million, which is a lot. Several news outlets are reporting that he is shedding staff and trying to make a course correction. But on Fox News this weekend, he defended his campaign. The number one thing I hear from people is this. When they come up to me, they're like, yeah, you know, I, I knew you did good in Florida. You know, I, I heard good things, but I hadn't seen you yet. And now that I see seen you, I'm for you. And I so like that's that. going to be what we're going to do over the next six months. Former Vice President Mike Pence and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie both announced in June, early June, they raised a million dollars and $1.5 million each. Those are pretty small numbers for the anti-Trump candidates. Just a bit of perspective, Robert Kennedy Jr., who's running in the Democratic primary, he traffics in conspiracy theories and is in the middle of an anti-Semitism scandal at the moment, raised $6 million in the quarter, more than twice as much as those two big-name Republicans combined. Wow. Interesting revelation there about who can raise how much money. So what else do you learn from this? You know, it can be an indicator of enthusiasm for a campaign, and in particular, those small donors, the grassroots donations. Right. A lot of these campaigns are coming up short in that area. Um, here's an example. Miami Mayor Francis Suarez was speaking at the Turning Point Action Conference over the weekend and started talking about the soccer great Lionel Messi, who's coming to the professional team in Miami. Anyone who wants to see him play his first game, I think it's July 21st, we have, what's that? Just give a dollar, Venmo. <laughs> he needs those dollars to uh, make the debate stage. There's a threshold and he's nowhere near close. Okay, NPR's Tamara Keith, thanks so much. You're welcome. You know, that reporting is a reminder why we cover presidential campaigns years out. Some people are dismayed, understandably. Why not tell me about the election when the election is at hand? But so many decisions are made beforehand. The money is spread beforehand. Things are happening, and our colleagues at NPR's Washington desk are on the story continuously. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, advice on how to beat the heat and stay safe as temperatures rise across the U.S. It's 820. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Evita at ART. Experience the groundbreaking revival of the Tony Award-winning rock opera, Don't Keep Your Distance, now through July 30th, amrep.org. We spend every day of our lives eating food. We spend every day of our lives in our body. And yet most of the messages you're getting as you're growing up are often misinformation from people who might not be as educated in the topic. We'll talk with authors who say they have a science-based and humor-laced way of making peace with your body. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
Mostly cloudy skies gradually clear this morning for a sunny day in the upper 80s this afternoon. Right now it's 76 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One, offering their premium travel card Venture X. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. From Indeed, Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Members of SAG-AFTRA braved the summer heat in New York and Los Angeles this weekend to pick it outside major media companies and studio lots. It's the first time since 1980 that actors from film and television shows have gone on strike. Now, back then, actors such as Robert Walden were just as adamant that they'd stick to it. I can't cross this picket line and feel like a human being, feel like a man. I can't do it. I can't function in my profession well unless I respect, have some dignity and respect about myself as a person. That strike lasted about three months. It included a boycott of that year's Emmy Awards, prompting this joke about a soon-to-be U.S. president from co-host Steve Allen. Who would have ever thought that all of us would live to see the day when Ronald Reagan would be the only actor working? You know? Ben Mankiewicz, host at Turner Classic Movies, is a Hollywood history buff whose family is one of the industry's best-known dynasties. When we talked earlier, I began by asking him what parallels he sees between the 1980 strike and today's. I think there are a lot of parallels. That was a inflection point in the business in 1980, and I think we're very clearly at another one now. You know, think back to, to 1980. There were three broadcast networks. You know, there were some local stations that would show old movies, maybe had some of their own programming, but cable was in its infancy, and home video was in its infancy. And that's really what the strike was about, was how to figure out how actors are going to get paid, the residuals that they're going to make from home video, and then also how they're going to get paid when their movies show up on cable television. Yeah, and so even though it was a new thing, there was that sense, right, that the actors knew that money was there to be made in the future. That's right. William Shallert was the president of SAG then, you know, a veteran uh, character actor. And even he admits that they didn't get a really good deal back in 1980. He said it, it caused him to lose the next SAG election to, to Ed Asner, who wasn't happy with the deal. I've been extremely dissatisfied with, uh, with cable, which I regard as a, uh, as a total defeat. That's where the parallels come in here. How do we account for streaming? There are no residuals in streaming. You know, I, it's a wonderful opportunity I have to occasionally talk to Mel Brooks and he always complains like, yeah, Netflix, sure, they're paying Adam Sandler $200 million up front, but there's nothing on the back end. When it comes to tactics that the unions or even the studios used in 1980, are there any that their counterparts today might be able to learn from? There's a degree to which union tactics are, they're limited. Inevitably, what usually works in the union's favor is not a tactic that the union takes. It's when at some point there's a split among management and some producers think, hey, we got to get back to work, man. 
Now, in 1980, it was two separate unions that went on strike, SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, and AFTRA, the American Federation of TV and Radio Artists. Today, Ben, the unions are together as one, SAG, AFTRA. How much of a difference do you think that'll be this time around as opposed to how it was back in 1980? Well, there's strength in numbers, so it's obviously better. And the merging of the unions was, I think, from a labor point of view, uh, wise. It really began, the merging of the unions, out of that simultaneous strike in 1980. And that strike lasted a little over three months. So uh, I I think undoubtedly that will lead to a better deal uh, for the actors. You know, I don't know if it'll lead to a good deal for the actors, but it'll lead to a better deal. You mentioned how back then there were just, what, three networks. Um, There were no streaming services. There weren't many options for actors. Does that dynamic still apply today in that actors really have nowhere else to go to work? Well, of course, now with the so many cable channels and so many streaming services, you know, there's many, many, many more shows available. There are more jobs, certainly. But some shows run eight episodes, limited series. That's it. It's off the air. I watched a show on uh, Netflix the last couple of days called Treason. I, I liked it. I like spy shows. Five episodes. It's over. That's the end of that show. But it's going to be on Netflix for a long time. Yeah. Any idea or any prediction, Ben, I mean, on how this might end or when it might end? I think the fall television season is not what it once was, given the decline of uh, uh, cable and broadcast television and the increase of streaming services. So the desire to get a deal done by the middle of September is less. That said, the writers have been on strike already for a long time. So uh, I think in the fall, early fall, there'll be some fissure among producers. And I think there'll be a desire of some significant people with weight to get back to work. That's Ben Mankiewicz, host Turner Classic Movies. Ben, thanks. Nice to talk to you. Thanks. And we'd like to note that Ben Mankiewicz told us that he is a member of SAG-AFTRA, but not an active one. He said that he did not partake in the vote authorizing the current strike. Also, many of us at NPR are also members of SAG-AFTRA, but work under a different contract and are not part of this strike. Your birth month can affect many aspects of your childhood, even if you don't believe in astrology. Take people born in August. My name is Emily Gibson, and I love the heat. I love the humidity. My name is Saida Saeed, and as a kid, I did not like that my birthday was in August because I hate summer. I hate the heat. My name is Kate Bauer. It was really hard to have birthday parties because everyone was out of town. My name is Joshua Curry. My wife's birthday and my son's birthday is in August, so we typically have a big barbecue celebrating August birthdays. Yeah, being born in August and certain other months has also been linked to catching the flu as a kid. Christopher Warsham and Anupam Jenna are both doctors and researchers at Harvard, and they both have kids born in August. Here's Warsham. Kids like ours born in the summer, when they go in for their annual physical, they can't get their flu shot. So they have to come back for another appointment. One of their parents has to bring them in, take off work, um, take them out of school or daycare. Hmm. Lots of kids go in for those annual checkups near their birthdays, of course, and flu shots are usually not available until fall. So, Worsham and Gina wondered, do some kids just never get their flu shots, and does that make it more likely they'll catch the flu? We saw roughly a 15 percentage point difference in the likelihood that a August-born kid versus a October-born kid got the flu shot. They discovered that by scouring data from insurance claims. And Jenna says there's actually a simple fix. Just schedule that flu shot. 
This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. Despite the recent U- U.S. Supreme Court ruling against affirmative programs at colleges, one small Massachusetts school for engineering is vowing to continue building diversity on its campus. It's 8.30. Use the WBUR app to listen live wherever you go today. You can use it to pause and even rewind. Find it in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Another day of extreme heat is in the forecast from Southern California to Mississippi along with South Florida. Heat warnings or advisories are in effect in more than a dozen states. Las Vegas resident William Cadwallader traveled to California's Death Valley yesterday where the afternoon high was more than 125 degrees. Your arms are burning, uh, your face is burning. Smoke from wildfires in Canada will be the issue today in more than a dozen states, including Montana, Michigan, and New York. Russia is suspending its involvement in a U.N. agreement that allows grain shipments from Ukraine's ports along the Black Sea. That deal was brokered last summer with the help of Turkey. As NPR's Charles Maines reports, Russian President Vladimir Putin wants a better deal for Moscow. President Putin had been signaling he wanted to suspend Russian participation in the agreement, which formally ends today either way. This deal brokered by the UN and Turkey allows safe passage of grain uh, from Ukraine and Russia through the Black Sea. Uh, The problem is President Putin has said the deal was one-sided. It only benefited Ukraine. And Putin said that months of negotiations had done nothing to address Russian complaints, that uh, Western sanctions on things like shipping and insurance and banking essentially prevented the export of Russian grain and fertilizer. And today the Kremlin spokesman said Russia was suspending participation uh, until those snags are resolved. This is NPR News. From WBMR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Local colleges are trying to navigate the Supreme Court decision banning affirmative action in college admissions. UMass System President Marty Meehan spoke with WB, WCVB's On the Record. He disagrees with the ruling. In the long run, I don't think it's negatively uh, going to impact the University of Massachusetts in terms of our diversity. No. I think we, we, we've established policies. We're looking at where uh, lawyers are looking at the decision. We're going to find a way to make sure that we admit just as diverse a class next year as we did this year. Meehan says that could include increasing outreach to lower-income communities. It could also include upping the number of summer programs for future students. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll have a closer look at how the Supreme Court decision is impacting the Olin College of Engineering in Needham. House leaders on Beacon Hill say they want to pass a 140-page gun reform bill by the end of the month. They'll gather during a closed-door meeting today meant to clarify misconceptions about the plan. It faces growing opposition from gun advocates. Supporters say the plan will improve gun safety in the state, and they point to the 13 shootings across the state this month alone. At Logan Airport today, it's going to be a busy day, making up for all the delays and cancellations caused by yesterday's rain. The website FlightAware says right now there are 85 flights in and out of Boston that are delayed. Another 40 are canceled. Nearly half of those delays and cancellations are on JetBlue. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com
The Red Sox beat the Cubs 11-5 yesterday. In Chicago, the Sox have won 9 out of 11 games so far this month. They'll visit the Oakland A's tonight. Sunny today with high temperatures in the upper 80s. Tonight it falls back to around 70 and grows partly cloudy. Tomorrow a high of 85 and partly sunny with a slight chance of afternoon showers. Right now it's 76 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Today, a special legislative session begins in Montgomery, Alabama. The Republican-led legislature is supposed to draw a new map of congressional voting districts. The U.S. Supreme Court said Alabama's current map likely weakens the power of black voters in Alabama. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong is covering this story. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. What led Alabama to this point? Well, after the 2020 census, Republican state lawmakers approved a new map with only one majority black district. And that means there was only one district where black voters had a realistic chance of electing their preferred candidate to represent them in the U.S. House of Representatives. That's one district out of seven districts for a state where more than one in four people are black. So a group of black voters, along with other groups in Alabama, sued and a lower federal court said last year, this is not a close call. This map likely violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and one majority black voting district is not enough because you can draw two. You said that that ruling was last year. So why is Alabama acting only now? Well, the Alabama Republicans appealed this case to the Supreme Court and turned this into an even bigger legal fight over Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and whether race can be considered when redrawing voting maps. And ultimately, the Supreme Court's ruling last month didn't make any changes to race-based redistricting and basically said, we agree with the lower court. Alabama should draw a new map with more than one majority black districts. But of course, that Supreme Court ruling didn't come until months after last year's midterm election. So the fact is, Alabama voted last year with illegally drawn voting districts. Oh, uh, which would give, if you look at the partisan difference, Republicans an extra seat advantage in what turned out to be a very, very close congressional election. What was the Supreme Court's rationale for waiting? Well, here's where we get into some of the legal weeds here. When the Supreme Court decided to take up this Alabama case back in early 2022, it also put a pause on the lower court's order for a new map to be drawn. And one of the conservative justices, Brett Kavanaugh, wrote an opinion, and it talked about this vague legal idea. Court watchers call it the Purcell Principle. And the idea is that federal courts should not make changes to voting rules close to an election to avoid confusing voters. But exactly how close is too close to an election. The court has not been clear about that. And there was enough time to draw a new voting map, a new congressional map last year, which probably would not have confused voters who were expecting a new map anyway. Hmm. You know, I talked to Gilda Daniels, a former Justice Department official who now teaches at the University of Baltimore's Law School. And Daniels told me the Supreme Court put the voting rights of Alabamians at risk. You can't get in a time machine now and go back and say, okay, 
you now have an additional district now vote under this fair and equitable map, this non-discriminatory map. Uh, we can't go back. We can only go forward. They cannot go back and revote the 2022 election where Republicans got this little advantage. But how could a new map change the next election? Well, the groups who filed a lawsuit over Alabama's current map are looking to see if there are two majority black voting districts in this new map. And if there are, that opens up the possibility of Alabama doubling the number of Democrats representing the state and the U.S. House representatives from one to two. And there may be ripple effects from the Supreme Court's ruling in this Alabama case. You know, more House seats could be at play because new maps may be coming from other states, including Louisiana and Georgia. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong, always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks. You're very welcome, Steve. Excessive heat advisories are in place across the U.S. from the Pacific Northwest to the southern tip of Florida. So if you want to spend time outdoors, you need to avoid some common mistakes that lead to heat-related illness. Here's NPR's Allison Aubrey. Dr. Neil Gandhi has seen plenty of heat exhaustion in his ER. As an emergency medicine doctor at Houston Methodist Hospital in Texas, the heat can be a serious health concern. But he says people tend to underestimate the risks. I think the most common mistakes really kind of fall into two categories. One is what I call too much too soon. When a heat wave comes along, most people are accustomed to working and spending most of their days indoors in the comfort of AC. And all of a sudden, on a Saturday or Sunday, they opt to spend six, seven hours outdoors. These individuals, are, they're very sensitive because their bodies are not acclimatized to handle the stress. The good news is that our bodies can acclimate, and what it takes is spending time outdoors each day in the heat before you decide to set out for a long day of cycling, hiking, golfing, or even tackling your home improvement or gardening project. David Eisenman is a physician and researcher at UCLA. He explains how our bodies adjust after repeated exposure to the heat. One thing that happens is that our body starts to learn how to sweat sooner. Also, the blood flow to the skin improves. And when there's more blood flow, it carries more heat. So it can get the heat out of the core of your body, cooling your core temperature better. He says there's no magic number of hours of exposure that it takes to adjust. It's more of a continuum. So bottom line, the more time you spend in the heat, the more acclimated you can become. Another common mistake people make is failing to prehydrate before they go out in the heat. Sounds kind of obvious, but lots of people underestimate. And in the extreme heat, you may start to become a little dehydrated before you sense thirst. Eisenman says eight cups a day of water is reasonable on a typical day, but being outside in the heat, you may need more. Most people aren't hydrated enough as it is. So I would double that on, on a day when you're exposed to a lot of heat. I would be making sure that you're peeing frequently and that the urine is pale clear. And that's when you know you're hydrating yourself correctly. Another way to protect yourself is to find out if the medicines you take can make you more vulnerable to the heat. Common blood pressure medications taken by millions of people can have a dehydrating effect, making them more susceptible to heat exhaustion. And when it comes to a really simple thing you can do on a hot day, the way you dress can make a difference, says Wafi Momin, a cardiologist at Memorial Hermann Health System in Katy, Texas. As far as being outdoors and what to wear and in terms of color, I would seek lighter colors because those tend to re reflect heat rather than absorb heat compared to darker colors such as your blacks and dark blues um, and then loose fitting clothing on top of that. He says the first signs of heat related illness can go unrecognized or even ignored. Things like slight fatigue, dizziness, nausea or a headache. 
those are the telltale signs of heat exhaustion creeping in. That's a way of your body telling you you need to cool down. So Dr. Moman says don't ignore the signs. The worst of the symptoms can come on very quickly without realizing it. And all of a sudden, you know, your body's overheating to a point where you won't really be able to drink enough fluids at that juncture to kind of reverse what's already gone on. That's how people end up in the ER. So he says be safe rather than sorry by acclimating, planning ahead to stay hydrated, and then recognizing when it's time to get out of the heat. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the economic lessons that can be learned from the video game industry. Sunny today and near 90. Tonight it grows a bit overcast and falls to around 70. Tomorrow, partly sunny and mid-80s. Right now it's 77 degrees in Boston. An Alzheimer's treatment by Cambridge-based Alnylam Pharmaceuticals is showing promise. The biotech said its medicine reduced buildup of plaque in patients' brains for six months during early-stage clinical trials. Experts believe those buildups are what cause cognitive issues associated with the disease. Putshack is one step closer to opening its new location in the Natick Mall. The Natick Select Board approved a liquor license for the adult mini-golf facility last week. Metro West Daily News reports the new location will have three distinct courses across two levels of the mall. The first Massachusetts location of Putshack opened in the seaport last fall. It's 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. This is WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Following the Supreme Court ban on affirmative action in college admissions, many fear student diversity will be rolled back. A small selective college in Needham will have to refine its approach after fostering racial diversity on its campus in recent years. But as WBUR's Max Larkin reports, the Olin College of Engineering may have a head start thanks to its highly individualized approach to selecting students. It was at a college fair four years ago that Moises Sabido Garcia first heard of Olin College. The school had set up a booth near those for MIT and Tufts. Even then, Garcia loved machines, his car in particular. So he asked around, and the admissions officer from Olin happened to give the right answer. And she said, yes, everyone is allowed to bring their car, and parking is guaranteed and free. Um, that was kind of it. Like, I heard that, and I said, I'm going to apply. Garcia is a first-generation college student of Mexican and Guatemalan descent. And when he first visited Olin, a chance encounter with a group of current Latino students there put him at ease. One night, they all cooked taquitos and all the sides and sauces and everything. And it made me feel excited. I was like, it's something small, but it's something that I know I'm going to miss from home. He was ultimately accepted into Olin and enrolled. You know, it was all, honestly, 
a sequence of very fortunate events. It was also the result of a school meticulously assembling its student body and trying to grow racial and ethnic diversity. Like many schools, Olin seeks out qualified students wherever they might be. But Olin also brings its top candidates to campus even before they've been admitted, where it learns more about them and tries to make them feel at home. Susan Hartley Brisson, Olin's director of admissions, explains the purpose of those so-called candidates' weekends. We develop an affinity for Olin early on. We partner with a multicultural group on campus, and they are really eager to host students of different backgrounds. It's that practice that makes staff at Olin College optimistic that, despite the new ban on affirmative action, they have a chance to preserve racial diversity. As one of the country's top colleges of engineering, Olin admits around 18 percent of its roughly 1,000 yearly applicants. It's also quite small, Hartley Brisson explains. At Olin, we have about 350 undergrads total in four classes. Very small, unusually small. That does give us such an opportunity in the application process to really know our applicants so very well. Olin was one of the many selective schools that used students' race or ethnicity as one potential plus factor in admissions. But then in late June, the Supreme Court banned that practice in a 6-3 decision by the court's conservative majority. With that, Hartley Brisson says, her office lost an effective tool. Personally, I had a very, I felt really sad about it, frankly. It seems like it's a giant step backwards for us in many ways. Between 2010 and 2021, Olin's Latino enrollment had nearly quadrupled, from 12 to 41 students. Its black enrollment went from just 2 to 11 students in the same period. Olin College President Gilda Barabino says the court's decision doesn't change Olin's diversity goals, which remain a central part of her administration and a personal one. When I went through school in engineering, I did not see people who looked like me. Barabino is a black woman, a celebrated biomedical engineer, and just the second person to lead Olin since it was founded in 1997. In an environment where people can see themselves, you're much more likely to be able to attract others as well. Who does engineering is going to influence who will do engineering. So, true to form, Barabino and her team are confronting this moment as an engineering challenge. For instance, they note that the court's decision explicitly leaves room for colleges to consider an applicant's racial identity, at least as one aspect of their broader life stories. Admissions staff at Olin, who meet so many of their applicants, have a unique opportunity to hear those stories and to take them into account. Staff can also double down on existing practices, traveling for recruitment, using students' home zip codes as socioeconomic indicators, and partnering with guidance counselors and community groups across the country. It remains to be seen whether all that will be enough to preserve the school's newfound diversity without affirmative action. But even if it's not, Barabino believes, they'll eventually find a way. To be an engineer, she says, is to think practically. There's a problem solve it. That cultured environment of constantly thinking about new ways of thinking and doing, it's like in the water, so to speak. A college like Olin has put lots of work and ingenuity into forming its environment over the years, and they don't plan to stop now. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin.
Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on Ukraine's destruction of a key bridge in Crimea and the story of a 51 year old Australian man and his dog found alive and well after going missing at sea for two months. It's 8 49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. Goodnewsgarage.org. And Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Now on view. ICABoston.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Russia has pulled out of a deal that kept the cost of wheat down worldwide by allowing Ukraine to export grain. Five people in Pennsylvania are dead after a flash flood there caused by heavy rains that also hit much of New England. Thousands of people have been killed in Sudan as the conflict there enters its fourth month. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. The Sumner Tunnel is closed through the end of August. So if you're trying to get from East Boston or Logan Airport to downtown, state officials say please don't drive. The fastest, cheapest, and most reliable way in and out of Boston during this time period is going to, without a doubt, be public transportation. We are providing free and discounted Blue Line, commuter rail, bus, and ferry service. For tips on how to get around the summer Sumner shutdown, visit WBUR.org and stay tuned to WBUR for updates. Sunny and near 90 today. Tonight it falls to around 70 and some clouds move back in. Tomorrow, mid-80s and partly sunny with a slight chance of showers in the afternoon. Right now it's 78 degrees in Boston. What do you teach students about tech careers when those careers are changing at supercomputer speed? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Indeed, a hiring solution that helps businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com hire. And by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. I'm David Brancaccio. First offices in cities across the country are running empty, which is putting strains on the commercial real estate market, its lenders, and the cities themselves. Nationwide, 20% of offices are vacant in San Francisco. In the spring quarter, it was nearly a third. London Breed is the mayor of San Francisco. She's concerned, but told me there are opportunities. We have a close to 30% vacancy rate in our city for office space. But for the life sciences, biotech, we're at about 3.7% in that vacancy rate. And so we are making it a lot more convenient through our policies to convert office space to be used for these purposes, as well as housing and other things. You can hear our conversation tomorrow about attracting people back to her downtown, about homelessness and affordable housing and about Mayor Breed's hope to make San Francisco the capital of the artificial intelligence business. Checking markets, S&P futures are down a tenth of a percent. Dow futures are down two-tenths percent. NASDAQ futures are up just slightly. We're also covering the slowing of growth in China's economy, which only grew eight-tenths of a percent from the winter to spring quarter. For China, that is hardly anything. 
Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Glassdoor. Beyond workplace reviews, Glassdoor now offers anonymous talk about careers, salaries, and work life. Professionals swap stories with coworkers and industry insiders who've been there, done that. Find your work people on the new Glassdoor app. And by Odoo, focused on providing all-in-one open-source business management software with fully integrated applications for every business need. More at odoo.com. And by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Our focus stays in the San Francisco Bay Area here. Do you have someone in your life who'd be interested in a career in video games, an industry bigger than movies and music combined? The first and second of our Skin in the Game video documentaries are streamable as of this morning. And here, for your ears, in a world of game players, how do we get more game makers? And so when the arrow hits the blocks, you're supposed to hit the key, this kind of thing? Mm -hmm. In January, Adonis Renesca was a high schooler waiting for word on his college applications. By spring, Adonis has become a video game developer. His first game is... Bombastic African Beats. <laughs> it was pretty fun. Bombastic African Beats. It was based off of the African country of Mali. Right down, right down. <laughs> He's teaching me to press letters on a keyboard to manipulate falling arrows into different color boxes. Boom. Yeah, there we go. Oh, down. Ah. You might need some practice. You think so? <laughs> what would make you think that? I get a D. Adonis gets an A, but I just like to say he's the guy who built the game. <laughs> he created this for a mentoring program in Oakland, California called Gameheads. The nonprofit holds classes in game development, coding, animation, and multimedia on Saturdays and more intensively in the summer. Before finding this, Adonis had never visualized a career in this burgeoning side of tech that dominates the economy where he lives. In one exercise, a GameHead's mentor asked students to pick from a pile of mysterious job titles. He just gave us a bunch of cards and we had to try and describe it. And I think I got senior video game program manager. I'm like, it's, it's like you're going to have to learn, I guess. Gameheads was started by a teacher who one day, on impulse, told a group of slackers if they did their work, he would teach them to design video games. Surprise, they did their work. Then it was up to that teacher, Damon Packwood, to make good. The idea grew from there with help from philanthropies like the California Endowment, and over time, contributions of money and stuff from nearby game companies, including Electronic Arts, Unity, and Riot Games. We only do cool things and we only work with cool people and we only have cool equipment and cool hardware and cool software. Among the cool people are mentors who also work at game studios large and small just across the bay. Gameheads is about creating possibilities for mostly students of color who'd been left thinking tech jobs were for someone else. The video game industry, as one graduate of Gameheads put it to me, is lacking in melanin and is now under moral and commercial pressure to change. We have a common concern, right? I want our students to be successful in whatever they decide they want to do. We just so happen to use video games to do it. And you guys just so happen to have a serious diversity problem. Gameheads has accumulated the technology for hands-on work, pro software, motion capture suits. Adonis likes the donated Ferrari-style seating. Yeah, these gaming chairs, oh my god. But the big asset here is the curriculum. 
Packwood sees the program as one big hack of traditional education. Tech is growing so fast that we really don't know what skills to actually teach them because in five years, 10 years, they might be obsolete. So like what skills do they need in order to be prepared for the future? Skills like communication, collaboration, creativity, problem solving, learning how to learn, and having an academic mindset. Here's a class in session. You would need to figure out what goes inside that square. Like what does it look like? Right, is there an icon in there? Martha Martin is from a few towns north of Oakland. After doing logistics in the Air Force, she's in college now. Martha's game has little attackers trying to nibble away at the player. She made a status bar tracking emotional health. So that's my whole game. It's taking your identity and take it to your safe place as you go through your journey. Martha is especially interested in animation, and the stock images she found didn't cut it. When I was researching like pixel art, there wasn't many of person of color ones, so I had to make my own. So I, that, I, I did that portion. Martha, that says a lot in itself. As we spoke, Martha was applying to join a student group at GameHeads working on a game about love and relationships. As for Adonis, well, he starts at UCLA in the fall. Next week here, I'll look at game economics. How should I style it? Gameonomics? And the video docs are on YouTube. Our handle there is Marketplace APM. I'm David Brancaccio with our morning report. From APM American Public Media. Near 90 today under sunny skies. It grows overcast again tonight and temperatures drop to around 70. Tomorrow mid-80s and partly sunny. There's a slight chance we may see some afternoon showers. Right now it's 78 degrees in Boston. The BBC is coming up next. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.